Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Evan Feeney, campaign director with Color of Change, who talks about his group's campaign demanding telecom giant AT&T and its support for right-wing extremist TV channel One America News. Jack Rasmus, a professor in the Economics and Politics Departments at St. Mary's College, who discusses the millions of U.S. workers who have either left their low-paying jobs or are now fighting for a living wage and benefits. And James Gustav Gus Beth, who for over 50 years has been a leader in the top echelons of the environmental movement, talks about his new book titled They Knew, the U.S. government's 50-year role in causing the climate crisis. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. In the Trump-dominated Republican Party, top leadership is embracing the Christian nationalism of Hungary's authoritarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban and other far-right groups in Europe. Former Vice President Mike Pence recently traveled to Budapest to embrace Orban's European nationalist, anti-immigrant, anti-LGBTQ agenda at a so-called Family Values Summit. At the summit, attended by Trump-loyal Republican operatives, Orban said, Hungary must defend itself because the Western left wing is attacking and the LGBTQ lobby is targeting our children. Orban recently signed a pact with Poland, the Czech Republic, and Slovenia, pledging to increase the birth rate in order to save what he called European Christian culture. Pence was happy to play his part, warning of a crisis that strikes at the very heart of civilization, marked by declining marriage rates, rising divorce, widespread abortion, and plummeting birth rates. The Swedish think tank VDEM Institute now classifies the U.S. Republican Party as ultra-nationalist and labels the GOP even more illiberal than far-right parties in Western Europe, including France's National Rally and Spain's Vox. Days before the final U.S. pullout from Afghanistan, members of an elite CIA-supervised Afghan commando force guarded one of the entrances to the Kabul airport, granting access to thousands of Afghans seeking to leave the country. The CIA-funded force, known as Zero Units, were much feared on the battlefield and known for conducting deadly night raids that killed an untold number of civilians across Afghanistan. The CIA prioritized the evacuation of zero-unit members, flying out as many as 7,000 of the former commandos and their relatives, even as thousands of vulnerable former U.S. government and military employees, human rights activists, and aid workers were left behind. Human Rights Watch decried special access given to the CIA's Afghan paramilitary units. The Rights Monitor says many zero-unit members committed war crimes, including summary executions. The group's associate director, Patricia Grossman, urged refugee settlement organizations to investigate these soldiers for possible involvement in human rights violations. Family members of zero-unit soldiers have already arrived at U.S. military bases in Virginia and New Jersey. 
As congressional redistricting gets underway across the U.S., Democrats expect to lose seats in Texas and Florida through GOP partisan gerrymandering. However, in solidly blue New York State, where Democrats hold a supermajority in the legislature, party leaders are seeking to flip upwards of five Republican seats whose district maps were drawn by Democrats in the state assembly and Republicans in the state Senate. With a major political shift in New York City's suburbs, Democrats now have the votes to reject the maps of a new bipartisan redistricting commission. A decade ago, congressional district maps were drawn by a federal judge based on old district lines that aided Republicans. New York's new governor, Kathy Hochul, who took over after multiple scandals forced Andrew Cuomo to resign, supports growing the Democratic majority, as do powerful New York Democrats like Hakeem Jeffries, a possible successor to Speaker Nancy Pelosi. As a Nation magazine observed, the survival of Joe Biden's agenda may rely on a new form of partisan gerrymandering in the Empire State. To some, a response justified by the GOP's national war on voting and democracy. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. An investigative report by Reuters, published earlier this month, revealed that telecom giant AT&T played a critical role in creating and funding One America News Network, or OAN, a cable TV channel that regularly serves as an echo chamber for Donald Trump's lie that the 2020 presidential election was stolen and disseminates lethal disinformation about the global COVID-19 pandemic. OAN founder and chief executive Robert Herring Sr. has testified that the inspiration to launch OAN in 2013 came from AT&T executives. Reuters reports that since then, AT&T has been a crucial source of funds flowing into OAN, with 90% of OAN's revenue coming from a contract with AT&T-owned television platforms, including satellite broadcaster DirecTV that has millions of subscribers. Asserting that AT&T is actively helping to bring down our democracy and disappear black votes, racial justice organization Color of Change and other groups are now demanding that AT&T end all of its financial support for OAN. Your reporter spoke with Evan Feeney, Color of Change campaign director, who talks about AT&T's relationship with far-right media outlet One America News and his group's campaign, demanding AT&T sever all its ties to OAN. AT&T has demonstrated a disturbing pattern of enabling dangerous far-right companies and extremists beyond just uh, the One America News Network. Examples of the horrible things that they're uh, putting out there from enabling white supremacy, COVID-19 conspiracies, uh, doubling down on the January 6th, uh, insurrection narratives. But even around that, like AT&T has supported insurrectionist members of Congress uh, who attempted to vote to overturn the 2020 presidential election. They're one of the many powerful companies that in the days after the insurrection said, we're going to halt political donations to uh, congressional insurrectionists. And within weeks, 
uh, they were already back to cutting checks to those members of, of Congress. And uh, even more recently than that, uh, AT&T uh, has been one of the most uh, significant funders of Texas lawmakers who sponsored the recent abortion legislation, which has uh, essentially made abortions illegal in the state of Texas. And so AT&T has really this year demonstrated a real consistent pattern of enabling far-right misinformation, election lies, and hate. In the Reuters article, AT&T is described as offering a lot of funding, but more importantly, a platform, an invaluable platform on DirecTV to get OAN's message into some, what's it, 30 million homes across the country? Yeah, something like that. For the most part, it's it's furnishing them with this platform because no other major media network, uh, media communications platform in the country is providing one uh, for One American News Network. Comcast refuses to give them one. Verizon refuses to give them one. Uh, so at the end of the day, AT&T through DirecTV is solely responsible for keeping this misinformation network uh, up and running. OAN's own CEO in a deposition revealed in the Reuters article himself said that without AT&T's support, his company could not exist. Color of Change President Rashad Robinson said recently that AT&T is actively helping to bring down our democracy and disappear black voters. And there's been a demand from from your group that AT&T sever all ties to OAN. Give us some of the details about this campaign and, and the strategy around it. Yeah, happy to provide some background on um, on the campaign. So for, for Color of Change, our expertise uh, really is in uh, holding corporations accountable, especially when those corporations put out statements and tweets and Instagram posts telling us that they're here with us, that they stand with Black communities, that they believe in racial justice and equity and uh, equality, as AT&T has repeatedly done over the last year following last summer's uprisings. And what we're seeing this year in particular uh, is a company not willing to act on those stated values. Uh, and so what we're working to do is to publicly show that uh, that juxtaposition of uh, what AT&T says it does versus what uh, what it actually does uh, and force the company to make a choice to either live up to those values or to turn away from them. Uh, and so like this is very much rooted in a sense of public accountability of AT&T, their leaders, their staff, you know, have to go home to their families, their communities and look them in the eye and say, like, uh, we actually reject the values that we say we care about. How best to apply public pressure to AT&T? They're one of the largest telecom companies in this country, and if not the world. Do they care about what people around the country generally or their customers think? Is their brand vulnerable here to criticism that could cost them profits, which is probably what they're most concerned about? Yeah, I absolutely uh, think that they are. Um, I think it was just a couple weeks ago that AT&T CEO John Stanky, he spoke a big game about how he's real concerned about AT&T's brand image out in the world right now. And so th there's a real moment and opportunity here for, uh, you know, uh, our communities to come together uh, and tell AT&T, like, what we think of their, of their brand, how it should be shaped uh, moving forward. And that includes uh, cutting ties with uh, you know, dangerous content platforms like the One America News Network. Uh, easiest way to get involved is to uh, support our campaign and sign the petition. You can text ATT to 55156, 
or you can visit our website, colorofchange.org. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, we're constantly putting out links to the petition, informational graphics that show folks like different ways to, uh, to engage around this work. That was Evan Feeney, campaign director with the group Color of Change. Learn more about the national campaign demanding AT&T and its financial support for One America News by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. As the year comes to an end, the U.S. appears to be in the midst of a wave of worker strikes. Earlier in 2021, 800 nurses at St. Vincent's Hospital in Massachusetts went on strike as did 1,100 coal miners in Alabama. Both strikes continue. During the summer, Frito-Lay factory workers also went on strike, followed by union members at Nabisco. More than 14,000 workers at cereal maker Kellogg's followed suit. Last week, 10,000 John Deere workers also went on strike. Some 60,000 film and television union workers averted a planned nationwide walkout after negotiators reached a tentative deal. In this, the second year of the coronavirus pandemic, fewer people are in the workforce, with many employers desperate to hire staff. After decades of austerity and growing income inequality, workers now have more leverage to demand a living wage and basic benefits. While the COVID-ravaged U.S. economy appeared to be in the midst of a robust recovery this spring, the latest figures from the U.S. Labor Department reveal a slowdown in the number of jobs refilled across the country as of September. Your reporter spoke with Jack Rasmus, author and professor in the Economics and Politics Department at St. Mary's College. Here, Professor Rasmus explains that beyond the growing number of formal union strikes across America, there are an estimated 9 million U.S. workers not returning to work out of choice. In effect, he says, they're withholding their labor and on strike for something better. You see, a strike is very simply put, uh, you withhold your labor. Right, you you don't go back to work. You withhold your labor. Uh, that's true in an economic strike when you're in a union to walk out. You withhold your labor. Uh, but what's going on now is this this huge wave of at least half of the unemployed out there, I believe, four or five million at least, who are choosing not to go back to work. They're withholding their labor because the jobs are so poor, uh, the wages are so low, and a lot of these jobs. People were getting jacked around uh, in terms of their work schedules. Uh, it was shut down and partial open and shut down and so forth. And you know they, they just see no future in those kind of jobs. And they're not coming back. And by the way, uh, it's true across all industries in the United States because the low paid, those who are temp workers, part-time workers, gig workers, there's at least 9 to 10 million people out there who haven't come back to work. And I'm saying about half of those probably are not coming back to work for for reasons of choice. Uh, not because the job's not there, but for reasons of choice. Now that five million people is a big number. And, and you can get it from the government's data, the employment situation reports. It's all there across industries. For example, you'd be surprised, but uh, supposedly, uh, you know, manufacturing is going gangbusters. Uh, there's still 350,000 
below what they were before COVID. Uh, education, about 700,000 people haven't come, come back. Um, professional personal services, we're talking about uh, 400,000. We're, we're talking about maybe that many in the leisure and hospitality. So it's across the board, you see. And because across the board, we've developed this phenomenon in labor markets of low paid, low paid, few of any benefits, terrible work schedules, uh, exploited by their employers, jacked around, um, abused, uh, and no hope of the future, you see. People who had to work a couple jobs, two, three jobs sometimes to make ends meet, uh, they're coming out of this COVID thing and saying, hey, I can't do this the rest of my life. Uh, I've got to find something different, something better. And that's why they're holding out. Now, they can hold out also because, you know, maybe their uh, their spouse is working, you see, uh, and bringing in enough, just enough money that they can weather the storm. Or maybe they're still getting unemployment benefits, uh, one or two of them in, in the family. You know, they cut out the special unemployment benefits, but they didn't cut out the state uh, unemployment benefits. pays less, but there's still something there. Um, and if you're not working, for example, uh, at least you may be getting Medicaid, right? Or maybe even getting COBRA paid uh, because of uh, you know the stimulus bill. If you go back to these these lousy jobs, you get no medical coverage. You see, uh, and maybe some of them are getting some money now starting July for childcare. Uh, and of course, they're probably having a hell of a time finding childcare. It's a big problem: affordability and availability of childcare. So one of them is staying home, watching the kids. Uh, and there's all kinds of different ways that they're making ends meet. You know, workers can be uh, v- very clever and um, uh, versatile when it comes to trying to survive in a strike. You know, uh, very pragmatic. As you said, workers across the country are leaving their jobs are not returning to their jobs by the millions, in part because of the inequality issue and looking for something better in terms of wages and benefits. What's been the response of the labor movement to date to a workforce that's more open and and enthusiastic to joining a union and collective action that we haven't seen in decades? And of course, this comes as the labor movement has been losing membership for the last 40 years. This seems like a once-in-a-generation opportunity for the labor movement to start to expand once again. What do you think? Yeah, well, that, that's a, a very important observation uh, because you would think uh, that the unions, seeing this much of a movement on the part of the unorganized, would uh, jump into that arena and uh, really find a way of connecting to those workers uh, and uh, organizing them, but you don't see it. You don't see it because the workers in the private sector have become so weak. There's only like six percent of private sector uh, unionized now. Uh, you know these neoliberal policies have decimated, destroyed uh, unions in the private sector. A lot of it moving jobs offshore. Uh, some of it displacing uh, jobs uh, with with machinery. Uh, free trade has done it. A whole list of policies have, uh, you know, just about wiped out the private sector. And the unions are just barely holding on, you know, to the membership they got. And there's no real leadership at the top of the AFL-CIO uh, that's saying, uh, well, let's let's have an offensive here. You know, it looks like the troops uh, want to do something. 
you know, I, I wouldn't put down, though, uh, the fact that uh, the employers have the law behind them uh, so much now when it comes to union organizing. It's really an uphill battle for the unions. But even so, you know, it would be a great opportunity now. With Obviously, workers are, are beginning to move. For the union movement to take the lead in all this, to find a strategy uh, that uh, combines all of this discontent out there. That was Professor Jack Rasmus, author of The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump, and host of the weekly radio show Alternative Visions. Find more analysis and commentary on worker strikes across the U.S. by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. James Gustav Gus Speth has had a more than 50-year career at the top echelons of the environmental movement, working in the worlds of government, nonprofits, and academia. He's a co-founder of the Natural Resources Defense Council, was chair of the U.S. Council on Environmental Quality in the Carter administration, and a leader of the United Nations Development Program. Speth also served as dean of Yale University's School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. He was recently asked by the attorneys representing 21 youth plaintiffs in the Juliana v. United States lawsuit, who are suing the U.S. government for denying their right to a livable planet, to write a history of how presidential administrations, starting with Jimmy Carter, have dealt with the issue of climate change. Speth does just that, in his new book titled, They Knew, the U.S. Government's 50-Year Role in Causing the Climate Crisis. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Speth about the book and the patterns that his research revealed. But I focus in the book on into the Carter administration more, more fully because first, I mean, I was there, so I had more information about it. And secondly, it was the point at which the issue really uh, became sort of a high-level policy issue in, the, in an administration. Up until that the Carter years, it, it had been a scientific issue an issue of some curiosity and, and interest, but not really uh, a policy concern. Uh, but in the Carter years, uh, it became a, a policy concern, not an overriding or, or, or powerfully driving one. That would come later, uh, but at least uh, it was acknowledged by President Carter that it was an issue. And he put the country on a good course with his uh, extraordinary efforts at uh, promoting uh, solar energy, notable in part because of the solar co collectives he put on the White House and his uh, great concern about uh, efficiency and, and conservation of energy. So Carter uh, got us onto a good start, let's say 1980. And uh, then, you know, 40, we look 40 years later and what we find is that that good start was not followed up. And uh, we're putting out more greenhouse gases today than we were in the Carter years. I agree that Carter made a good start. He, he seemed to understand the issue and was promoting renewables. But as you pointed out in the book, every single administration you covered recognized the problem, they knew there were alternatives, and yet they continued to promote fossil fuels. 
I think uh, there are there are patterns that the book uh, reveals over this 50 year period that, that it looks at from LBJ through through Trump. And uh, one of those uh, patterns is that every administration knew and was informed about the status of climate science and the reality of the climate threat. Every one of them, going back to Carter Forward, uh, has had an abundance of information about the climate threat. Secondly, uh, every administration uh, was also informed about alternatives to just wholehearted, full throttle reliance on fossil fuels. Everyone was presented with alternative plans in one way or another. And then thirdly, as you say, everyone continued the full support of the fossil fuel economy and did everything that they could do to promote uh, fossil fuels. Now, some of them combined that promotion of fossil fuels uh, with a, an, an effort to promote renewables uh, and to promote energy efficiency and energy conservation. Basically, they were the three democratic administrations of, of note in this, in this story, uh, Carter and Clinton and Obama. But every one of those administrations that, that uh, acknowledged the problem was followed by what I think of as a flamethrower administration that tried really hard to undo what they had, uh, had accomplished. The result is that, you know, 40 years uh, uh, after the Carter administration, uh, what, we, uh, what we find is that we are putting out more greenhouse gases today than, than then. The percentage of fossil fuels has gone down from uh, 90% to 80%, roughly, but the total use of fossil fuels has gone up. Gus Smith, knowing what you know about this more than 50 years of government support for fossil fuels and the impacts we're seeing because of it, how do you get up in the morning? You know, we, we have a tragedy. It can only get worse, and that should motivate us. Some other good signs, uh, too, that we shouldn't neglect. Uh, the climate has seen a birth uh, of, a, uh, of the youth movement in the climate arena. And, and so much of the activism today is driven by young people. And that's really uh, all, all to the good and, and very, very important. Also, it's really very interesting that indigenous populations in the U.S. and in Canada are very uh, awake now to this issue and the, the way that it's driving a lot of changes, uh, particularly the fossil fuel developments uh, on, on their lands. You know, so that's another another encouraging sign. The second thing is that, of course, the the uh, climate uh, disruptions are motivating a lot of people. People, the news didn't for a long, long time, indeed decades, didn't cover uh, serious fires and other other weather events as as things that were related to climate change. But now it's saying and acknowledging that, oh well, the climate is behind this. The climate change is behind this. That was James Gustav Gus Speth author of the new book titled, They Knew, the U.S. Government's 50-Year Role in Causing the Climate Crisis. Net proceeds from the book are donated to pursuing the youth-led Juliana v. United States lawsuit, which is still working its way through the courts since it was first filed in 2015. Learn more about the book in the court case by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org.
You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WREK in Atlanta, Georgia, WZMO in Marion, Ohio, KMWV in Salem, Oregon, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. Mm-hmm.